The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Last week, Trish and I were driving side by side. We were both going to the YMCA. She was taking two of our kids to one YMCA because she was going to teach a class and they were going to play basketball. I was driving in the other car and I was taking the two little ones to downtown Y to go swimming. Well, as we were driving along, I noticed that she kind of trailed off and I looked in my rearview mirror and the big red car that we call Clifford, our Suburban, was sitting on the side of the road. And so I called her and I said, is everything okay? And she said, well, actually there was a loud pop. I think a belt broke. And so I encouraged her to drive it down to an auto shop. She drove it down there. I met her there and uh, they looked through it and they said, your transmission is gone. You need a new transmission. The, uh, the Suburban, which we love, um, had about 260,000 miles on it. And um, the minimum cost to fix it would be about 2000 And so we had a choice to make. Do we trade it in or do we fix it and keep going? Well, the, the auto place was very gracious to us. Let us keep our car there for a while as we figured things out. And so the next day I went to go look at cars to see if we had the opportunity to buy a car that would fit us. And so I went around and I was looking at different cars and I found one that I thought was good and I brought it home to Trish and we wanted to sleep on it and think about it. And so I came back the next day and I pulled into the dealership and I was talking to the dealer who was in the parking lot. And as I turned to park in the grass, I hear a crunch. And my car ran into a rock about two feet high that I couldn't see from where I was in the driver's seat. And so I rolled down the window and I leaned out and I asked the salesman, do you have any two-for-one deals? <laughs> Unfortunately, the answer is always no when it comes to car dealerships. But, but so I get out and I, I think, okay, maybe it's just a little dent, but I try to open my door and every time I open my door, things are kind of bashing and rust is falling to the ground, which is never a good sign. And, but I take it home and we're down to one car and Trish drops me off at a coffee shop so that I can work on the sermon. And a few hours later, I get a call from her and she's crying. Uh, evidently, the piece below the, the door had fallen off and she has six kids with her who are restless and crazy, and she needs to get going to the YMCA. Evidently, we go to the Y a lot. But, but so she's there, and she's panicked, and it's one of those weeks where it just goes from bad to worse. Have you ever had one of those weeks or one of those days where you think, man, it couldn't get worse than this, and then that happens? Well, today's passage is a day that goes, a, a period, I guess I should say, that goes from bad to worse, to worser, to worsest. And it makes my car situation look like a walk in the park, to be honest. But when we have those types of weeks where things go wrong, or when we come to the Bible and we see those chapters where all you read of is devastation, you're left with the question, where is the goodness of God in this? Where is the love of God in this? Where is the mercy of God in this? My hope today is that as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, which is not a happy chapter, just to warn you, but as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, we will get somewhat of an answer, at least 
to this chapter of why this is included in the Bible, but also maybe give us a glimpse of why these things happen in our own life. And so if you would, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 228. If you're in the Children's Bible, it is page 302. If you are just joining us for this series, let me give you a brief recap. 1 Samuel chapter 1, there's a woman named Hannah who is uh, who is barren, and she prays for the Lord to give her a child and promises that if he does, she will give him back to the Lord to serve in the temple for his entire life. Well, the Lord gives her a son. She dedicates him back to the Lord. In chapter 2, Hannah rejoices and prays, not at the birth of her son Samuel, but that the Lord is gracious and generous and merciful and just, and he is the Savior of his people. That chapter moves on, and we see the wickedness of the priesthood, especially Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who have been, um, who have been stealing the sacrifices of the Lord, blaspheming against God. They have been manipulating the woodmen of the temple for unrighteous reasons. And then a man of God comes and tells Eli that God will bring judgment upon them. And the sign that this is God's judgment is that both of them will die on the same day. 1 Samuel chapter 3 gets a little bit brighter. It starts out by telling us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, meaning that people were not teaching it and rejoicing it and enjoying it, but also that the Lord was not giving new revelation because the people of God did not cherish his word. But as the chapter moves on, we see there is this glimmer of hope that God starts to speak to his people again through his prophet Samuel. And through that, through Samuel, he speaks words not only of destruction to Eli, but also of hope to all of Israel. And that's where we come to today's passage. In the book of Judges, which comes just before 1 Samuel, God brings his judgment against wicked people, and it's going to happen again today. A people who have forsaken the word of the Lord and who have done what is right in their own eyes. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of just walk through this chapter And there's three main parts to it that I want us to look at. The first is Israel's superstition. The second is Eli's devastation. And the third is Ichabod's representation. Before we do, let's pray again. Lord, again, we pray, God, that your word would ring true in our hearts, Lord. Um, God, we, I just pray that you would break down any walls that would allow us to hear what you might be trying to tell us today, Lord. We know that we try to protect our idols very closely. Um, We put up big walls so that we don't hear what you're trying to tell us. Lord, we pray you would break down those walls and draw us into obedience and into a deeper relationship with you today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First, let's look at Israel's superstition. We're going to start midway through verse 1. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's Pause there for a second. Just to give you a frame of reference, I have a map for you here. And if you look up to the top part, you see Shiloh is where Samuel is. It's where Eli is. Uh, the battle happened at the, nor- 
northeast corner of Philistia. The Philistines are trying to extend their territory. They're a sea people, but they want more land. And so they go to battle against the Israelites. The result of the war is devastating. 4,000 of Israeli men died. That means there are 4,000 families who have lost a father or a son or a brother. And so Israel retreats back to their camp. And the elders of Israel ask a very wise and a very theologically sound question. They do not ask, why have the Philistines defeated us? But they ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? You see, this question indicates that the elders of Israel have learned, at least intellectually, that the battle belongs to the Lord. That their defeat was not due to poor tactics or to Philistine strength. For all that mattered, they could have been fighting the Smurfs. It didn't matter. It was the Lord that had defeated them. And the question seems to indicate that they acknowledge that this military defeat was judgment from the Lord. And so they ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? They perceive this at least intellectually, as a wake-up call from God. Now, the appropriate reaction to this wake-up call for Israel would be to search their hearts, to repent to the Lord, starting with the priests, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, who had blasphemed against God time and time again and bullied the people of God. And then it would trickle down to the people who have forsaken the word of the Lord and were doing what was right in their own eyes. They should have responded to this by searching their hearts. It was a wake-up call from God. You know, it's interesting. When you go to a hotel, many times you'll call the front desk and you will ask them to give you a wake-up call. You'll say, please give me a wake-up call at 4.30 in the morning. Maybe you have a flight to catch, or maybe you have a meeting to get to. Whatever it is, you have them uh, issue this wake-up call in the morning. And so the phone rings at 4.30 a.m., and it's the most annoying ring on the face of the earth. The, the, the room is completely pitch black because they have those gray curtains, and this phone goes off, and it's annoying, and it's loud. And, and at that time, you really have three options, right? You can either ignore it and let it keep ringing, which is too annoying to do. Or you can pick it up and answer and then get on with your day, get on with your business, or you can do what I do, which is pick up the phone and hang it back up and just keep on sleeping. But, but this is a wake-up call. And the purpose of it is to, is to get your attention, to get you out of bed and get you moving on your day. The elder's initial assessment was right. The defeat was God trying to wake up the Israelites. He's trying to get their attention and draw them back into faithful, covenant, wonderful relationship with him. You see, God loved Israel so much that he would destroy their bodies in order to save their souls. Now, how does this apply to our life? If your situation has gone from bad to worse, if there is suffering in your life, you need to ask the question, why? Is this suffering because God is trying to awaken me from my spiritual slumber? Is God trying to reveal to me unrepentant sin in my life? Is God trying to get my attention? 
because there's something obstructing my relationship with him. Now, we have to be very careful when we ask this question. We cannot draw a direct correlation. We cannot say, I am suffering, therefore there is this unrepentant, unhindered sin in my life. It is not necessarily a one-to-one correlation. That's the mistake that Job's friends made, right? They said, the reason you're suffering is because you're sinning. And Job said, I don't see it. And so it's not that it's always, if you're suffering, it's a result of sin in your life. But we have to ask the question, Lord, is this suffering to get my attention? King David actually gives us a great example of this in Psalm 139. If you're familiar with that psalm, you know the bulk of it is this really sweet thing about God knit me together in my mother's womb. But as you get to the last half of it, David is expressing the turmoil that's going on in his life, how people are slandering him, hating him, trying to hurt him. And then he ends the psalm with these words, the words, to be honest, the elders of Israel should have been saying. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me And lead me in the way everlasting. This should have been the prayer of Israel. Lord, is there something that we're not seeing? Is this a wake-up call? Search us, Lord, and show us our sin. And lead us in the way everlasting. We should go to God in the midst of our suffering. And at least ask the question. And the answer may be, You know what? You just live in a fallen, broken world, and it happens. But the answer also might be, I'm trying to get your attention. Are you listening? Return to me. Return and be faithful. God loves you so much that he will bring suffering in your life in order to wake you up and capture your heart and your soul. And so the elders pose that question, and maybe it encourages us at first, but then we see that it is little more than lip service. The very next statement might be the worst decision made in human history, and I'll explain why. But as we read on, verse 3, second part, the Israels, after asking this question, say this, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. When you look at this passage, it's one of those that upon reading it, you kind of say, seriously? Hophni and Phineas? Hophni and Phineas are escorting the ark? Hophni and Phineas, the one that are worthless men, wicked men, blasphemy men, sexual predators to whom there is no atonement for. These are the men that are escorting the ark and the presence of God into battle. Bad idea. Bad idea. They could not have picked 
two worse people to escort the ark. But you see, this is just a picture of what is happening throughout Israel as a whole. You see, the ark represents the glory of God and the presence of God and the throne of God. And so they wanted to bring their warrior God to the battle line. But the problem is this. They did not bring the ark by faith. They brought it by superstition. You see, Hophni and Phinehas and the rest of Israel wanted God to defend them, but their lifestyle showed that they didn't want to submit to him. They wanted the blessings of a relationship with God without any of the obligations of a relationship with God. They wanted God to be their savior, but they did not want God to be their Lord. Again, how do we apply this today? You know, so often we claim Christ as our Lord and Savior. But do we live that out? We may look to him for our salvation, but do we look to him as a master and commander of our life? You know, much to my shame, I'll tell you, when I was in college, there were days where I would pray, Lord, help me with this test. And then I would sneak in the, 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 the mathematical formulas that I should have memorized into the test so I could complete the problems. In that moment, I wanted God to be my Savior, but I didn't want him to be my Lord. I didn't want to submit my life to him. I just wanted him to rescue me from the test. You know, you can look at the cross and praise him for the debt that was paid, but he is called to be your master and your Lord, and we are called to surrender every area of our life to him. Is there any area of your life that God has crossed your will? Is there any area of your life that God has trumped your desires? If the answer to that is no, then God is not your Lord, you are. You see, God is not just our Savior, but he's also our Lord. There is so much superstition in the church today. Say this prayer this many times and all your dreams will come true. Make this sign with your hands or give this much money and all your prayers will be fulfilled. Wear this jewelry and God will protect you. Pray to God as your savior. Pray to God as your helper, but also pray to God and submit to God as your Lord and your master. And so Hophni and Phinehas escort the Lord to the battle lines, and the superstitious Israelites celebrate. And we read on in verse 6. It says, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Although the Egyptians' facts and theology are off, they seem, at least for the moment, to revere the Lord more than Israel does. It goes on, verse 9. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Then they fled, every man to his home. 
And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. God gave Israel a wake-up call. 4,000 men had died. The elders asked the right question. They say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? But then they refuse to search their own hearts and repent and return to the Lord. Instead, they take the ark of the Lord, reduce it to a lucky charm, and bring it to the front lines of the battle. This is a horrible decision. Verse 4 calls the ark the covenant of the Lord of hosts. Do you know what this word host means? This word host is a military term that refers to a, a band of soldiers organizing for a word. And so the elders of Israel make one of these worst decisions in human history. They take the Lord who they have continually rejected and who had just defeated them and they bring him to the front line of the battlefield. I was trying to think of what analogy this would be like. It would be like a zebra poking a lion in the eyes and then dragging him to the supper table. That's essentially what they're doing. They're mocking God. They're trivializing God who had just conquered them and they bring him to the front line. Not only has Israel added insult to injury in minimizing the holiness of God, but they have brought God into the furnace and the result is a catastrophic explosion. 30,000 men dead. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, dead as prophesied. And the worst part, the Ark of the Covenant is captured. You know, God is not like a lucky rabbit's foot. He's not like a gentle kitten. He is a ferocious lion that is king over all. He saves our souls, but he also demands our obedience. The fear of of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because the Lord loves his people so much, he will bring destruction to their bodies in order to save their souls. Now, I know many times we read this and we say, well, that's just the Old Testament version of God. God was cranky then. Let me read to you from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5.4, talking about an unrepentant man in the church, says this, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. God loves us so much. He will destroy our bodies in order to save our souls. We are to trust Christ as our Savior and submit to him as our Lord. And so that is Israel's superstition. Next, we see Eli's devastation, and we'll move quicker through these next two points. Look at verse 11 with me again. It says, And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. These are signs of lamenting over great disaster. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching. And then listen to this. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the men came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. 
When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. You know, Eli is such a fascinating character to me. He's such a complex character. He's rebuked earlier for honoring his sons above the Lord. And yet, we also see throughout this passage changes happening in Eli's life. Eli later rebukes his son for their evil deeds and warns them not to sin against God. Eli blesses Elkanah and Hannah, and they bear more children. Eli directs Samuel at the appropriate response when the Lord calls him. And when Samuel comes and tells him the prophecy that God is going to bring judgment upon his household, Eli responds, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And then we get to this passage In verse 13, we read, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled, not for his boys, not for his people, but for the ark of God. And then down in verse 18, we read, as soon as the messenger mentioned the ark of God was captured, Eli fell over backwards from his seat and died. To Eli, I'm sure that the death of his sons was horrifying news. But the capture of the ark was absolutely devastating. Throughout this chapter, we see the grace of God, not only in removing this corrupt priesthood, but also in changing a corrupt priest. You see, Eli's heart is starting to change. He's starting to honor the Lord and the ark, even above his own kids. In 1 Samuel 3.14, the Lord says, Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. This was the judgment against Eli's sons. If it applied to Eli, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. But what the text shows us is that Eli's sin had consequences. That the consequence of his sin was death. You see, the text tells us that Eli was a heavy man. He was large, and literally he was in charge of the temple. Eli was large not because of his genetics, but because of his sin. He had fattened himself off the fatty part of the sacrifices that were supposed to be given to the Lord. Now, what is interesting is the Hebrew word here for heavy was carefully chosen because it also means honored. And it was precisely because Eli did not honor the Lord, but honored his children, that he was heavy. And it was his heaviness that came from not honoring the Lord that led to his death. A simple way of putting it is Eli died 
under the weight of his own sin. And that is true of all of us. See, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Death is the wage of sin for all of us. Your death and my death come because of our sin. This is true for all people except for one. The only person to ever live and not die under the weight of their own sin is Jesus. Jesus did not die under the penalty of his own sin, but the penalty for our sin. Romans 6.23 continues, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no payment you can make to remove the penalty of death. You cannot escape death. Yet Christ came to give it to you freely, to take the heaviness of your sin and bear it upon himself. When I first came to faith in Christ, when I was born again, one of the sensations I felt at that time was like a weight falling off my shoulders. I know other people have described it the same. If you don't have that description, it's okay. But that's what I felt, like a weight falling off my shoulders. It was the heaviness of sin and guilt and hell that God had taken off of me and put onto the shoulders of his son. You know, unless Christ returns soon, all of us are going to die without exception. The physical consequences for physical sin is physical death. And so the question is not whether or not you will die. The question is what will happen when you die? Will there be a second death in which you are tormented in hell for all eternity? Or will you then finally live before the glory of God? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Now we see this further unfolded in Ichabod's representation, what his name means. Look at verse 19. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel." because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This unnamed wife of Phinehas has a similar response as Eli. At hearing the horrible news of all that had transgressed, she was more distressed about the ark than she was about her own husband or about her father-in-law. And so a day that was to be filled with great joy, the birth of her child, the birth of a son, was a day of great tragedy. And she names it Ichabod. This is an awful name, not only because it sounds unfriendly to our ears, but it is awful because of what it means. Ichabod means no glory or where is the glory? She is grieving that not only has the ark gone away, but the ark has been exiled. And with the departure of the ark is the departure of the glory of God from Israel. You know, I have not done 
many studies on the Ark of the Covenant. There's not a seminary class, the Ark of the Covenant. And so it's fascinating to look and to learn and to understand why was this so central to Israel? Why was it so important to Eli? What was it so important to this woman who gave birth? And I mean, more or less, they responded to the news of the captured ark by dying. That's a pretty strong response, isn't it? And so the question is, why is the ark so important? Well, there are many reasons, but I just want to point out two to you. And they both have to do with the mercy seat. If you look at this picture up here, the mercy seat is basically the the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant holds these things, and the top of it is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was extremely valuable for many reasons. But two reasons I want to point out is that the mercy seat was where God met with man. In Exodus 25, 22, we read, God says to Moses, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are those winged creatures, the ark on the covenant of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so from the mercy seat was where God met with his people. But it was also where God met with Samuel and spoke to Samuel and spoke through Samuel. And so the first reason the ark was so important is because that's where the people met with God. But the second reason the ark was so valuable was the ark was the way man was made right with God. According to the book of Leviticus, the ark was to be placed in the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies could only be entered once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then it could only be entered by the great high priest who was covenanted to do so in order to sprinkle blood of a sacrificial bull onto the mercy seat as an atonement for sin for himself, for the priests, and for all of Israel. Leviticus 16 says this, The high priest shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Then he shall make an atonement. Later on in Leviticus 16, it goes on to say, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether a native born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. The Day of Atonement is also called Yom Kippur. Yom meaning day and Kippur meaning atonement. The Day of Atonement was the most important day of the Jewish calendar for Eli and for other faithful Jews. And it still is today. In fact, if you were in Israel today on the Day of Atonement, you would see that there is no traffic. There are no cars out. There is no music playing. All of the shops are shut down. The airport is shut down. Everything is silent as they celebrate this day of atonement. That's how central this Yom Kippur, this day of atonement was. And the ark was central to this central celebration. And so the mercy seat that was to bring them into right relationship with God, to atone for their sins, was now gone. We can start to see why it was so devastating to Eli and to this woman. 
the place where God met with sinners and the place where annually there was an atonement for their sin was now gone. There was no place to atone for their sins. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a greater mercy seat. It is not layered in gold, but it is covered with splinters and blood. And it was not the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At the cross of Jesus, Ichabod happened on our behalf. At the cross, the glory of Christ departed. He traded the glory of his righteousness, of his majesty, of his holiness, of his perfection, of his divinity. He traded that glory for all sin, for all his people, from all time. The glory had departed so that God's justice could come down upon him. We no longer have a need for a mercy seat upon the ark of God because we have a mercy seat at Calvary. Our mercy seat is the old rugged cross. We have a greater mercy seat where sacrifices do not need to be made time and time and time again because those sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ once and forever for all eternity. And his sacrifice is sufficient for you. We need not cry out, Ichabod, where is the glory? For Christ laid down his glory so that our eternal destination can be glory with him for all eternity. Let me end with this. I am by no means a literary master. Um, my wife can attest to that time and time again. But one of the categories of literature, one of the genres is tragedy. And I think 1 Samuel 4 would, would probably qualify as a tragedy. A tragedy is a story in which someone who you can identify with meets destruction. In our story today, in the midst of your suffering, maybe you identify with Eli, this really interesting character. Maybe you, maybe you, maybe you resonate with the people who were in battle. Maybe you resonate with this woman who lost a husband and a father-in-law. And so as we look at this chapter, this tragedy, we may ask the question, why is it, why is it in the Bible? Why is it there? What is, what is God trying to tell us? Well, it's interesting because Aristotle wrote out what he believes to be the purpose of tragedy in, in literature, but also in plays. And this is, this is what he said. He said, the aim of tragedy is to bring about a catharsis of the spectator, to arouse in them sensations of pity and fear, and to purge them of these emotions so that they leave the theater feeling cleansed and uplifted with a heightened understanding of the ways of God and men. And so if I could just summarize what he's saying, Aristotle is saying, I think that the purpose of tragedy is to make us feel pity and fear so that when we feel those things, we can get rid of them and just feel good. But I don't think this is God's purpose for this tragedy. I think the purpose that God has for this is to serve his people with a wake-up call with a warning to get our attention, 
to warn us today as a church to turn to God or his glory will turn from us. We have seen this happen throughout history. As you look at the churches in Revelation, as you look at the empty and abandoned churches in Europe, as you look at the mass exodus from church in America today, the people who turn from God, God is patient and loving, but then his glory turns from them. If you are here today and you say, Jesus is my Savior, and he is Lord over this 90% of my life, today is a wake-up call for that 10%. What is that part of your life that you are refusing to make him Lord over? This is a wake-up call today that God determines that to be serious. And he loves you so much that he will bring suffering into your life in order to free your soul. And so if it is the first time or the hundredth time, turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for wake-up calls because we know that you give it to us as a gift of your grace, that we may not continue in self-destructive behavior that just leads us further and further away from the one that we were created to be in relationship Lord, I know myself, I'm so, I'm so careful to, to, to not heed these warnings, to, to create reasons why I don't need to hear it and, and why this part of my life is an exception. And so, God, I just pray that you would help bring down the walls, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we would seek your face, that we would seek to find you not just as Savior, but as Lord, and would submit all of our life to you, God. Lord, I pray for anyone in this congregation who is maybe feeling the weight of their sin, that you would help them to repent of it, not just in words, but with their whole life. Connect them, Lord, with someone who loves them and can walk with them, whether it be me or Chad or someone else in this room, God. Lord, we want to live free, and we know that freedom only comes in following you. And so God, give us the grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.